And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. I entitled this message, uh, Justice and Joy at the End, but as I worked on it through the week, um, I thought I need to cut this down. And so I'm going to talk more about the justice than the joy uh, today, and uh, we'll talk more about about the joy that is promised to the saints in heaven next Sunday. So this, this is going to be a little intense as we talk about the judgment of God. The deadliest disaster, natural disaster that happened in U.S. history, it was a hurricane that hit the city of Galveston, Texas in 1900, September the 8th, and estimates range uh, over how many people died, 6,000 some people say, maybe even 12,000 people, because they weren't able to get an account of all those who were missing. So that happened September the 8th, 1900, and before that happened, uh, the weather station at Cuba had sent a warning to the U.S. Weather Bureau saying, we think a hurricane is headed your way. Those messages were ignored. And then there was a man in uh, Galveston, Texas, who was the head of the Weather Bureau there. And uh, he realized, he realized too late that indeed a hurricane was headed for Texas. And so, on September the 7th, he raised the hurricane warning flag, black and and red flag, to signal to people that a hurricane is coming. And at this time, Galveston was a wealthy city. It was a resort city. People were there to have a good time, not to think about hurricanes. And so, the warning was ignored as people continued on, eating in the restaurants and walking on the beach and swimming in the ocean. The next day, this man, who was, again, the chief of the Weather Bureau Service there in Galveston, took his brother to the beach and told people, you need to get shelter. A hurricane is coming. And once again, many people just ignored that warning. But indeed, a storm was heading their way, which would bring 15-foot waves and by afternoon, half the city would be underwater. According to a newspaper reporter at the time, he wrote, The city of Galveston is wrapped in sackcloth and ashes. The sorrow and suffering are beyond description, and the grief unbearable. This city had been warned. Those who heeded the warning were saved. But many people ignored it. And they went on as life as usual. Well, in Revelation, John gives a vision. He is granted a vision from God. And he relays this vision in highly symbolic language about the destruction of a city. He's warning that there's a city that is going to be destroyed. It's going to fall under the judgment of God. And he identifies this city in Revelation 18 as the city of Babylon. And the reason why John gives this 
relays this vision of the coming destruction of the city of Babylon is so that people will be forewarned and they will come out of this city because he writes in Revelation 18.4, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins and share in her plagues. So he gives this vision of the destruction of the city of Babylon and he says to the people of God, you need to flee this city. And our reading today in chapter 19, we see heaven's response to the judgment of Babylon. So, 18, he reports the fall of Babylon. 19, heaven's response to the fall of Babylon, which he also calls here the great prostitute. It's another term for Babylon, or some translations say the great harlot. Well, if this city is going to fall under the judgment of God, we probably want to know the identity of such a city. And so what is the city of Babylon? There's almost universal consensus among Bible scholars that for John, Babylon is code for Rome. And so one clue to this uh, is found in Revelation 17.9, which says that the woman, the great prostitute sits on seven mountains, and the city of Rome was founded on seven hills. So at one level, Babylon in first century, in the first century context stands for the Roman Empire. But at another level of symbolic meaning, and we know that symbols have multiple levels of meaning, at another level, Babylon really stands for an attitude, a mindset. An attitude toward God. Remember that it was at Babel in Genesis 11 that people said, let us build a city for ourselves. Let us build for ourselves a tower into heaven. With its top into heaven. And they said, let us make a name for ourselves. The self is at the center of Babylon. That's the spirit of Babylon. We don't need God. We can get to God on our own. We can get to heaven on our own. We can make our name great. Concern is not to glorify the name of God, but the concern is to glorify the name of humanity. So we see that in the Tower of Babel. And then as, as the story of the people of God unfolds throughout Scripture, we see this empire of Babylon rise up. And it's under the Babylonians, under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar, that Jerusalem is destroyed, that the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, and that the people of Israel were taken into exile. That happened under Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And so Babylon stands as an entity that is in opposition to God and his people. Babylon is not so much a place. It's, a, it's an attitude. It's an attitude that persists throughout history. As one scholar said, at the heart of the city of Babylon is self-deification. That's what Babylon stands for in the Bible. And you can hear the spirit of Babylon today. The, this idea of self-deification. You can hear the spirit of Babylon in our culture, 
it persists throughout time. But you hear it in, in popular spirituality today. You have your truth. I have my truth. What determines truth? The self. Truth is relative. Now, there is some truth in that statement. You have your truth and I have my truth. If you're saying you have your experience and that helps you and shapes the way you understand reality, that's true. We all have different experiences that shape how we understand the world. So there's a grain of truth there. Don't want to dismiss that. But some people mistake that kind of mentality to suggest that truth with a capital T is what I determine it to be. As if we can bend reality to our will. You have your truth, I have my truth. But we read already today in our liturgy, in the Collect, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What determines your view of truth? Is it God? It is it the God revealed in Jesus. So you can hear this kind of voice of Babylon in our culture today. And the book of Revelation says to the early Christians there in, in the Roman Empire and to us in American culture, come out of Babylon. Get out of this city. It's going to fall. Now, why will Babylon fall? Why is God going to judge Babylon? The fundamental sin, I said, of Babylon is, is pride. It's rebellion against God. It's self-deification. But that sin manifests itself in different ways in society. And so, what did it look like in first century Rome, what kind of sins does John point out? Sins of Babylon say, see, this is why God's going to judge. To answer that, you've got to go back to Revelation 17 and Revelation 18 and really study the symbolism there. But I'm just going to give you sort of an overview here real quickly. The picture that's painted there, what is said about Babylon, I mean, that could be copied and pasted and put on the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or you know, this is what we see on CNN and Fox News and MSNBC or wherever you get your news. It's on Twitter. This is, this is what the world, the fallen world, looks like so often. What he says about Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18. So he talks about the shedding of innocent blood. The shedding of innocent blood. That blood is on the hands of Babylon. He talks about turning political figures into idols of worship. That's what's going on in the city of Babylon because God is replaced by a human figure who has power, the beast. That's going on in the city of Babylon. A lifestyle of luxury and the pursuit of pleasure at the expense of other people. The oppression of other people in order to pursue luxury and pleasure. Revelation 18 says that Babylon trades in gold, silver, pearls, and, listen, slaves. It names slavery as a sin. That is, it says, human souls. 
So in Babylon, people are reduced to cargo. They become objects. They become tools. These sins of Babylon are sins, obviously, of our time and of our history. And Revelation says these are sins that deserve the judgment of God. And and this judgment is going to come. I mean, the empire of Babylon fell. And the Roman Empire fell, even though the people who were the rulers of the the Roman Empire said it was an eternal kingdom. It fell. And God is saying this spirit of opposition to him and this oppression of others in the name of self, this will not last forever. So, I want to point out two particular sins that are mentioned in Revelation 19, verse 2. Again, there's, you have to go back to 17 and 18 to get the big picture, but here two are singled out if you look at verse 2. For his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality, the Greek word pornaya there, Pornaya. That's where we get the word pornography from. And that kind of captures what's going on with this word. Pornaya. The the great prostitute Babylon has corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her. God is going to avenge on her the blood of his servants. The murder of the people of God, which in the Greek it actually says out of her hands. She has this blood on her hand. The murder of the people of God. So those are the two sins that are singled out here in 19. Immorality, pornaya, and the murder of the people of God. Blood on her hands. So let's just talk about those two things for a minute. Now, in the Bible, pornaya, immorality, it's, it's translated in different ways. Adultery, I think, is the NIV Fornication is another way, but here it's, it's um, immorality. Oftentimes it's a symbol of, of idolatry, of unfaithfulness to God. But then in the book of Revelation, not only is Rome critiqued and judged for idolatry that happened around the Roman Empire and this cult of worship for the Caesars, But there's a connection between that and sexual immorality. You know, there was temple prostitution that happened in the Roman Empire. It was bound up with this idol worship. And if you read Romans 1, and we won't go into all this now, but if you want to see, Paul makes a link, a very clear link between um, idolatry and sexual immorality. Instead of worshiping the Creator, you worship the creation. And your understanding of sexuality begins to go outside the boundaries that God has put around it. God is the creator of male and female. God is the creator of marriage. God is the creator of sex. And he called it good. But God has put boundaries around it to promote human flourishing. And pornaya is going outside of the boundaries that God has placed on this gift that he called good. 
And it creates something distorted. And that was going on in the Roman Empire. Again, you had temple worship. You had, if you look at the lives of the Roman Caesars, and I'm not going to go into all the gritty details, but if you look at the lives of the Roman Caesars, they were basically the Jeffrey Epsteins of the day. Except there was no way to prosecute them. They were a law unto themselves. They used sexuality to oppress other people. They used it as an expression of their power. They abused people of all ages and genders for their own pleasure. And that was the model of sexuality because that's what the leaders were doing that ordinary Roman citizens saw. And what Christianity did, as one historian put it, Christianity brought a new sexual ethic into the Roman world. It was not to be used as a tool of oppression, not to objectify people, not to see people simply as objects to be used and disposed of. But Christianity, this historian says, quote, place sex within the context of committed bonds of marital love. It links sex to love and compassion. Jesus in our gospel reading says, love one another. Christian sexual ethic teaches us how to love one another in healthy ways, not objectify other people. When we go outside the boundaries that God has placed when it comes to sexual expression and behavior, it creates pain and suffering. I've seen that in my family. The pain and suffering and the broken relationships that follow when we go outside these boundaries. They're there for our good. I've seen that in my ministry. And so, God is saying to the people of God, come out of that. Come out of that. It's going to lead to a fall. Pernia, immorality, is a great idol. I don't think I have to make a case for that. It's a great idol of our day. It is, the, it is one of the clearest manifestations of the spirit of Babylon today. This is my body, and I'm going to do with it what I want, and God doesn't have the right, if there is a God, to tell me what to do. Pernia is, is like the forbidden fruit. It is alluring, it is attractive, it tastes good for a season, but it contains a poisonous pill. It will not satisfy, it will not give you the love and the happiness and the joy that you seek. It will never be enough because you're seeking happiness and joy and life outside of God who is the source of all these things in a perfect way. So, pornaya leads to destruction. And if you're engaged in pornaya, if you're engaged in this kind of immoral lifestyle, you're thirsty and you're drinking salt water. But the good news of Revelation is this. 
There's an invitation. There's an invitation that goes out to people. I mean, he's writing this to Christians and he's talking to them because he knows it's alluring. He knows they're, they're searching for true satisfaction and joy. And here is the, here's the forbidden fruit that the culture is saying, this is what you're looking for. This will give you satisfaction. And yet the invitation goes out in Revelation. There's a marriage supper of the Lamb and that will give you the satisfaction. There's a stream of living water. Two times, at least in Revelation, the, 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 the call for those who are reading this is come to the living water and drink from this water and then you will be satisfied. It is a water that is provided freely from God. The Spirit and the bride say come. Let the one who hears say come and let the one who is thirsty come. Let those who desire take the waters of life without price. So now is the day to come out of Babylon. And there is a day of judgment coming, but now is the day to come out and to come to the waters of Babylon. The waters of life, rather. Come to the waters of life by repenting. Come to the waters of life by receiving the forgiveness that God offers. The forgiveness that was won to you, for you, by the Lamb who was slain. If you're struggling with immorality, pornaya, in all of its various forms today, you're not alone. This is a huge problem in the church. And we are here to help people drink of the waters of life. We're here to help people be set free. There are ministries that I'm aware of that I can put people in contact with that that's what they specialize in. I just met with a lady on Friday and they have over a hundred people that they're ministering to in this city to help people get free of sexual addiction. And so I, I would love... It. There's no shame here. This is about living this abundant life that God offers. So, no shame and completely anonymous to come to me and I will help you and I will put you in touch with people. This is what they live for. This is their ministry. This is their life. Not only has Babylon corrupted the world through pornaya, it says Babylon has the blood of God's servant on its hands. God will judge Babylon by avenging on her the blood of his servants. Christians are not to take vengeance into their own hands, but to trust that God is the one who will avenge. God will avenge the blood of his servants. So we've talked about this before as we look through the book of Revelation, that this is in the context of martyrdom. This is in the context of people who have to be willing to die for their faith. But friends, that's not ancient history. I know that many of you know this, but just to remind us, that's not ancient history. There are martyrs today. According to the World Watch list, every day, 13 Christians are killed because of their faith. Every day, 13 Christians, according to the World Watch list, are killed because of their faith. 12 Christians are unjustly arrested and imprisoned because of their faith. 12 Christian churches or buildings are attacked every day because of their faith. This is happening today. In places like China and India and Pakistan and North Korea and Nigeria 
and Afghanistan. Afghanistan. Since the Taliban took over in Afghanistan, they've imposed Sharia law, and Muslims who convert to Christianity are now subject to the death penalty in Pakistan. And adults who will not convert to Islam are subject to the death penalty under Sharia law. That's how the enemy of Christ has always tried to destroy. That's one of the ways, that's one of the tools. The enemy of Christ and his kingdom has tried to destroy the church, and yet the church still stands. It still stands. It's still going to stand. But we need to pray for our brothers and sisters who are under that kind of oppression. This murder, not only the murder of Christians, but the murder of all innocent people cries out for justice. And God promises that that day is coming. At the end of time, Babylon will fall. And that's why we as Christians can have hope rather than despair. Because of this biblical view of God as the ultimate judge. I want you to notice in this passage, as we think about the judgment of God, which is not a message we it's, it's easy on our conscience and it's not easy to hear, this idea of the judgment of God. I want you to consider what is said here about how heaven responds to the judgment of God. Heaven rejoices because there is such a thing as ultimate justice. Hallelujah. Over and over, three times. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, which means praise the Lord. And then at the end, it says praise the Lord for the justice that has come because of God. And then notice, it says, verse 2, his judgments are true and just. Do you believe that? I mean, again, there's this tension that we have. We believe in a God of love, but sometimes that's difficult then to talk about a God of justice who brings judgment like this. And there's all kinds of questions about that. But do we believe that his judgments are true and just? And, and that the same God who showed his ultimate love in Jesus Christ is a God whose judgment is perfectly true. And it's in accord with his mercy and his love. But he is also a God of justice. We can praise God. We can praise God that he is just. We can have hope in ultimate justice because of this vision. Well, friends, in conclusion here, how do we resist the voice of Babylon? In The Lord of the Rings, this, we've all seen the movies or read the book, at least most of us, in The Lord of the Rings, which is Tolkien's just amazing epic of the struggle between good and evil and light and darkness. There's that scene when the hobbits are going forward on their journey uh, in their battle against evil and they're weary and they're exhausted and Sam asks Frodo I wonder what sort of tale we have fallen into you see in order to make sense of our life in order to make sense of our world today we need to know the answer to that what kind of story have we dropped into what kind of story has God put us into to make sense of our life. The Bible says that we're in this, this story of an epic conflict between two cities. The city of Babylon and the city of the New Jerusalem. The city of man and the city of God. And the city of Babylon allures us. The city of Babylon tells us, preaches to us, catechizes us. 
indulge the self, indulge the self. Whether that's materialism, entertainment, sex, violence, indulge the self. That's the message. It's very strong. It's very alluring. How do we resist it? The voice is everywhere. Well, we heed the warning that God gives us here. Babylon is going to fall. And then we listen. And probably most important is to listen to another voice. And that is the voice of our Lord Jesus Christ. The voice of the crucified and risen Christ. When he says, I want you, you're a citizen of another kingdom. I want you to live like this, not for self, but to sacrifice the self out of love. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I loved you. You are to love one another. And then he went to the cross to show him the depth of his love. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have loved one for another. As we love one another, as we love one another in practical ways, it shows the world we belong to another kingdom. We need God's grace and the ministry and the help of the Holy Spirit to live like this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would help us to listen to the voice of your Son, to love one another, to grow in self-giving and self-sacrificial love, to resist the siren call of the city of Babylon, which has lived for yourself, instead to live for you and to live in service to others. Oh, we need your help to do this, because in our natural state, it's impossible. But through your Holy Spirit, through your word and through the ministry that you apply to us, we can grow into this. So help us, God, I pray. In Christ's name. Amen.